Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. My name's Vry. I'm a writer and editor for Anime Feminist. Uh, Vevem, you can find me on Twitter where and the places I freelance at Writer Vry, or you can find the other podcast I co-host at Trash Pod. Uh, today I have with me two very special guests, uh, Megan and Marion. If you two would like to introduce yourselves and the stuff you do. Okay, uh, my name is Megan. I've been reviewing manga on my own blog, The Manga Test Drive, for coming up on eight years now. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brainchild129, and occasionally as a writer for Anime Feminist. Hi, I'm, I'm Marion. I write and I make videos. I have a channel called Marion B, where I upload videos mostly about retro anime, mostly shoujo. You can find me on Twitter at eccentricmarion. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. And the reason I have invited you to shoujo fans, I think this is actually the first time we've had a podcast that's two-thirds guests. That's very exciting. Um, but the reason I have asked you both on today is that we are talking about the 1984 anime adaptation of Glass Mask. The shoujo classic, and it's very important to denote that it's 1984 because there have been a lot of versions of this extremely well-known story. Uh, Marion, you've done quite a bit of study and writing about the series. Would you like to give folks kind of a primer of the publication details and a little bit what it's about? Yeah, Glassmas is about Maya Kitajima, who loves acting and her rivalry with a prodigious actress called Ayumi Himekawa and their shared ambition of playing the titular role in this, I mean, this legendary role in a phantom masterpiece called Crimson Goddess. The mangaka is called Susue Miyuchi and this manga has been running since 1976, but it has gone on a lot of hiatuses, so there there are not many volumes right now, there are not many and not many chapters in comparison to other manga that has been running for a lot less, like the acting shoujo Skid Beat, which started in 2002 and is almost as long as Glassmas right now. I think the longest hiatus Glassmas has gone through was from 1998 until 2008. It has switched magazines more than once, from Hana to Yumi to Vetsatsu Hana to Yume, and around 2013, its 50 volume was supposed to come out, and to my knowledge, it still hasn't come out to this very day. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it seems to be a problem with uh, with a lot of longer running older shows that you know a lot of a lot of those classic magazines like Princess and all of that are shutting down. I know that was a problem with the. I don't think it ever officially ended, but Wikipedia marks it as done now uh, from Eroica with Love, which technically was running all the way up through 2012 and shuffled around a lot in its publication schedule and where it was coming out. Yeah, it's interesting because you expect that sort of thing from a magazine like Princess, but this has uh, been with Hanata Yome, which is not necessarily known for long runners like this. Hmm. So... A lot. Uh, we have talked on the podcast previously about the Magnificent 49ers who are, you know, mostly known for their work in Proto-BL and as kind of outsider artists, maybe akin to 
how we think of Ikuhara nowadays, but Glass Mask is a little bit of a different animal, right? Right. Uh, this is more representative of kind of the shoujo mainstream of the day. Although the story itself is kind of old-fashioned. This sort of poor girl, rich girl rivalry is something you would expect to see more in shoujo manga from the late 1960s. So it's even for its day, it was something of a throwback. Which might, ex I guess, might explain part of its longevity in that it's hearkening to these extremely archetypal tropes which tend to cycle back into fashion every decade or so. Kind of an idea for listeners at home, uh, in addition to the manga which started in 1976, there was this anime in 1984, there was a TV drama in 1997, uh, there was an OVA in 1998, and then there was another anime in 2005 which is on Crunchyroll but we won't be covering. It looks quite long, and if I'm being shallow, I don't like the visual aesthetic as much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's definitely interesting to note that uh, this actually came from uh, not a terribly notable studio, at least for most anime fans, uh, a studio called Icon, not to be confused with the OVA of the same name, <laughs> formerly known as Television Corporation of Japan, or TCJ. Uh, interestingly, they're mostly known for doing a lot of notable 60s shonen shows. Like, they animated the original Tetsujin 28 and 8-Man and stuff like that. Uh, they've been working basically since the 70s, I believe, on Sase-san. So this is the only shoujo series they have ever produced. And the same goes for the director, uh, Gisuburo Sugi. Uh, he is an old pro. He actually started out at Mushi Productions back in the day in the 60s. Uh, as a director, he is most noted for directing the original 1969 Dororo, uh, relevant to Fry's interests. Uh, he directed the Lupin the Third pilot film. For which he owes me an apology. That pilot's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> and in the 80s was also noted for directing the film Night on the Galactic Railroad. Uh, for the series Touch, which is one of many shows about growing up and baseball based on a manga by Adachi Mitsuru. Yeah, the uh, sequel to that uh, is Mix, right? And that's running right now. I don't know if it's a direct sequel, but it's it's very much a, a, a spiritual sibling. Mm. And most interestingly of all, 1994's Street Fighter II, the animated movie. I mean, people like that movie. <laughs> People like that movie, but for very different reasons. <laughs> Fair he, enough. Yeah, he was also an episode director in the original Astro Boy. Oh. So the, the this is a guy who definitely had some clout, but this still managed to be something of an outlier for him, which I think will be really interesting to keep in mind as we go through this watch-along, because you know, already you can see that aesthetically this doesn't really look like necessarily the manga or even other shoujo anime that were airing at the time. It's it's much less... Floored? Yeah, let's go with that. Um, a, a lot of using those like uh, uh, metatextual aesthetic imagery that you associate with shoujo than something like uh, what I know of Rose of Versailles. Yeah, Rose of Versailles really leaned into its shoujo <laughs> origins and uses a lot of its visual language. This show, for the most part, does not. Yeah, for me, it's... Notable, I mean, this is the 1984 adaptation, but it's still notable that this is an adaptation of a 70s manga because in the 70s, 
there was this interest in European settings and aesthetics, which is very notable in Ayumi's design, who has these princess dresses. Like, it really piqued my attention that in the show, when Maya plays a role, I mean, Maya has a role in Little Woman, she wears a dress that's very similar to the kind of dresses Ayumi will wear, like, normally in her home. <laughs> just, just to hang out. <laughs> yeah, and she has these huge ringlets that were really popular in 70s shoujo. And also mark her as the rival, because the rival always has those big sausage curls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like uh, Ayumi is, like, the word example of what you would think of for a classic Ojo character. Despite borrowing from that those European settings, this is still set in then well uh, then modern Japan, more or less. It's a very contemporary tale, even if it's become a history piece now. It's interesting to look back on these titles and see how uh, which ones were, I guess, you know, wh- whether even they were thinking about playing the long game uh, and, and how they have sort of aged and gained that additional layer of who they appeal to or how you have to do the extra work to contextualize them. Something like Rose of Versailles almost exists out of time in that it has a very loose relationship with history, but you know. <laughs> uh, and so we noted this is a almost 50 volume series obviously there hadn't been that many made when this anime came out in 84 although the manga had still been running for about eight years at this point but at the same time um i would characterize these first five episodes as everything happens so much (laughs) (laughs) indeed there's a lot that happens in just these five episodes yeah, it's it's almost, it, in some ways, I think the show gets away with it because it has that very heightened melodrama that was in fashion at the time, just kind of as the in, as the art form was developing. Uh, but also, so it makes it seem like, no, it's totally on purpose that these characters are just leaping from emotional peak to emotional peak, that probably there was a lot more downtime in between in the manga. I don't know, how did you... Um, Megan, this is, I mean, you are the other first timer on this podcast. How did, how did this feel for you compared to the shoujo you're used to or other classic shoujo you're familiar with? Uh, it's emotionally definitely a lot, as you said, like, in the weird way, it's not histrionic. It, it doesn't feel overwhelming, but it is just, it is a lot of emotion in your face all at once. Yeah, it asks... It asks a lot of investment from you right off the bat. Although, Maya's kind of interesting as a heroine because I can't get a bead on how much she's supposed to be sort of the every girl that you you see on and off in shoujo or whether she's supposed to have this distinct character element that the, the reader is supposed to have a certain amount of distance from. I don't know. I think in a way her blankness kind of works for her because like a lot of heroines not just in shoujo manga but a lot of the uh, kind of classic melodramas that this is drawing from you know she's just a poor girl from a poor family (laughs) not particularly beautiful not particularly smart but that makes her the perfect tabula rosa just this blank slate upon which her acting coach can just impress all of her talent and all of her skill upon her and while maya is not an extraordinary personality She's not a complete blank, because if she has anything, she has intensity. She's almost manic 
when it comes to acting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I usually describe Glassmas as having the intensity of a boss battle or like a shonen battle. Yes, absolutely. Like in the training sequence, like there's a training sequence on the snow that goes all supposedly goes on for five days and no one ever stops to like be a human being and have something to drink, sleep, take a break. It just goes on it just goes on and on and on and it's it's ridiculous but it's so entertaining. It's emotions. Yeah, and I wonder if that's what drew the director as even as somebody who's not normally a director of shoujo is that that very shonen battle-esque-ness. I mean, I did definitely end up thinking of Tsukikage, uh, Maya's acting mentor, as Joan Crawford meets Piccolo because she fully does the <laughs> I have tossed you out into the wilderness to survive on your own, but technically I'm up here, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, there's- Child abuse, what's that? Yeah, yeah, there's um, there's a lot of child abuse played as totally for the greater good in this series. So <laughs> yeah, far, yeah, there's there's a part where Tsukikage beats the shit out of Maya, and blood com- comes out of her mouth, and everyone is like, "This is so terrible." She she has to stop, but no one stops them, and she just goes no. on. And the acting, I mean, she's supposed to want, I mean, Maya is supposed to portray this uncontainable anger. So Tsukikage just beats her and beats her and beats her until she's able to do it. And then at night when she's like chill and thinking about what happened, she's like, I really hated you, but then I understood. And he's like, what? <laughs> you understood what? And it should be noted that Maya will even do this to herself. Like she, at one point, she's playing Beth in Little Women, and so she's like, "I have to get into this character, but how do I do it?" I know. I will sit out in the rain in the middle of the night until I get nearly deathly sick, just so I can get better into character. She is method beyond method. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that this kind of love for method acting ends in Jared Leto sending dead rats to his co-stars. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> feelings feelings about the reverence for method acting um, i will definitely say as somebody who did some acting training even if i ultimately didn't go into that field there are parts of this series that are like well this is an exaggerated version of things i saw but it's not wrong i i definitely <laughs> had professors who gave a version of the big speech Tsukikage gives to Maya before taking her on about how you have to want to sell this so much you could die and not be able to think of anything else or you'll never make it. Like, that's for real. And that feeds into kind of the, the big conflict, at least within these five episodes, where it's not just this rivalry between Maya and Ayumi, but it's this whole concept as acting as art and acting as commerce as represented by the two different acting schools and the the actresses that represent them yeah the the fi- uh the finances of art are extremely present in these first five episodes like there's a lot of background going on about whether or not Tsukikage will be able to afford to keep the school going and the factors that feed into you know this other company that's trying to sabotage her and get them to close. Yeah, the show makes it very clear that she's 
basically putting her fortune on the line to open up this school and find this actress so that she doesn't have to sell out the rights to this play, which were willed to her by the original playwright to sell it out to this big corporate acting company that just wants it for the sake of wanting it. Yeah, there's, uh, of course, the reason Suki Kage, this beautiful, talented actor, it has become a mentor is because she, her face was scarred during a performance, and now she is <gasps> ugly. Kind of, on one side of her face, she has a minor facial scar. <laughs> I don't know, I think she's got some serious fashion goals going on, what with the long, dark hair and the, the long, dark, velvety dress, hanging out in giant gothic mansions, luring strange young girls into it. It's, it's very gothic, <laughs> with a capital G. Yeah, I mean, and also part of what makes the Crimson Goddess a fundamental masterpiece is that Tsukikage played the role of the Crimson Goddess so well that she made it legendary, like, with her talent. And that's why the creators gave her the, gave her the, the, the rights of the play. And also why no one has been able to do this play again, because if it's not as good as Tsukikage wants it, then it won't be done. And it's also why this other company is obsessed with this play because they're basically they're basically obsessed with with the performance Tsukikage gave and also with the fact that it's that it's a phantom masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a very gendered element to the art versus comment or commerce discussion because you have Tsukikage and Maya and the students mostly represented by. Uh, Ayumi at the other school who are all just in this because they loved the craft so much and then most of the people we see putting pressure on Tsukikage are men you know whether it's the dudes from the Yakuza who she's kind of in deep with because that's part of what she had to do to get her school open or the uh the members of this other company that are trying to buy out the rights to Crimson's Goddess from her which include which which I guess means we have to now talk about Hayami who is the worst Ah, <sighs> oh, Hayami. <laughs> Speaking of Hayami, I have this tab open of the show where it says, like, the information of the anime, and there's a part where it says, objectable, objectable common content, sorry, <laughs> objectable content, mile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Hayami is a member of the, he's one of the owners of the, the commercial acting school, and he's been raised to, you know, obey his father and become the, the leader of this, of this, uh, I guess, equivalent of something like a Johnny's or similar sort of commercial group. But he becomes obsessed with Maya, and it should be noted that he's somewhere in his 20s, and Maya is 13! He's 11 yeah. years older She's than Maya. She's third. Like, I I don't go in... I, I have a really hard time buying into age gaps, even when the character is, like, almost, like, older, is older teens. Like, even if she were 17 or 18, I would find this kind of creepy. But she's 13, though. And the show leans hard into this. Like, uh, the, the image that becomes associated with Hayami, and particularly his... Uh, relationship, quote unquote, uh, with Maya is the concept of the purple rose. Like it, they initially meet when she injures herself and he picks her up and she leaves a blood stain on his vest that is shaped like a purple rose. And it becomes this thing that he sends her in secret, like a secret admirer. And 
out of curiosity, I looked up what purple roses mean in, in like uh, the language of flowers. And a lot of it is about like glory, majesty, success, enchantment. But the most common one, love at first sight. Ew. That sure is something you pick when your protagonist starts at 13 years old. <laughs> it, it feels extra grievous because Hayami isn't even necessarily a kind of character that I that I dislike in other stories like this, you know, where he's sort of been groomed for this corporate role by his shitty dad, and he's he's playing this role, but really he's deep and sensitive on the inside, and he just needs the right person to bring that out of him. Like, I'll buy into that if I'm in if I'm in for something tropey, and the person who is who is sparking this passion for him to be himself is not 13 years old. But here we are. <laughs> it, it feels like it does a disservice to the character, you know? Yeah, this the thing with between Maya and Hayami is pretty much a daddy long leg story, and mm. the anime. Yeah, you've been tweeting around... about this a lot. <laughs> I have seen the show. I have seen the '90s shoujo show, which has a similar problem because the original daddy long legs. I mean, in the original daddy long legs, the protagonist is in college, and being for shoujo, I mean, for the shoujo demographic, they the age the the main character to high schooler and it's the same problem that here and for those of you not familiar with the story uh daddy long legs is a story from the 1900s a children's story about a young woman who grows up an orphan who uh gains this mysterious sponsor who will send her off to ladies college but the condition is she must never know his name but she must write letters to him every week and she only gets a glimpse of him once and all she knows is that he has long legs hence the nickname daddy long legs but oh it, it turns out that he was like the father of a, a classmate of hers and he's loved her from afar all this time and at the end they get married which if if Maya and Hayami's relationship is following that path oh boy well again it's a daddy long legs story <laughs> just, just for the record Ooh. I was actually less put off by the 90s version that with whatever fuckery goes goes on here because of how it was done but it, it was still unsettling but i definitely wanted to crawl out of my skin a lot more in glassmas and it makes me feel bad for you who's like the only male character in this stretch who doesn't suck yes she does have a perfectly normal traditional age-appropriate love interest in another boy from the andere acting school the competing acting school named you Sakura Koji, and he's a perfectly normal, handsome teenage boy with a perfectly normal mother who supports him, and therefore because I have seen and watched enough shoujo, I know this boy has absolutely no hope. (laughs) It's, and like, that's probably why their relationship suffers a little bit in the condensing of the adaptation because they go on they they do have one date where they like spend the day together and it's nice but then the next time we see him uh maya is acting extremely jealous because he he catches ayumi so that she doesn't get a head trauma when she passes out (laughs) it's it's a little much how dare he i know you're 13 but please This this is actually more intense in the 2005 version because I think it was around the first few episodes when the dude is already like, Maya, I love you. And that's when you know that this dude has no chance because there there was no struggle, 
no tension. They just went straight ahead to the I love yous and be a couple and whatever. Doomed. Although, I'll be honest, the most interesting relationship in this by far is uh, Maya and Ayumi's rivalry. And like the, the actual... Like the actual respect they have. I think when, when you hear about... When you look at Ayumi or, or hear about her role in the story, you might think of her as... Or you might expect her to be more like an, an Anami type of character, but they really are standing toe-to-toe, and Ayumi really respects Maya, and it's cool. Yeah, Ayumi, when I first watched this show, I was I was expecting Ayumi to be more of a mean girl, but she really respects Maya, and she's among the first to acknowledge Maya's greatness. And she actually makes her peers stop making fun of Maya and acknowledge her greatness as well. And meanwhile, Maya goes to see I, uh, Ayumi perform more than once, and she's just stunned by the level of her acting. This, this is what I want more in modern anime. Like, I feel like this, <laughs> this equal female rivalry kind of got lost somewhere along the way. Less bitches be competing, less bitches be inspired by one another. <laughs> Here for it. Yeah. Here for it. Yeah, I have the suspicion that this is the Glassmas adaptation that waters down the romance the most. But I wish, I mean, I wish they would have watered the romance even more so I could just read lesbian tension between Maya and Ayumi in peace. It's very good and I do ship them and they're, I mean, they're small children. I want them to tenderly hold hands. <laughs> and this this respectful sort of rivalry even extends to Maya's other classmates because even if she isn't getting that sort of competitive rivalry from Ayumi, you would expect it from like her other classmates because, oh, she's getting all this special treatment from Tsukakage. And yet, no, like her roommates and the other students at uh, their acting school are actually really supportive of her. I mean, there is a little bit of of that from the two characters we meet right at the end of this stretch who are drawn to be obviously evil and villainous and you know not as good looking as all of the good characters <laughs> yeah but it's definitely for drama's sake yeah yeah it's definitely this show i think maybe it, it was slightly unfair of me because um but I was kind of coming in with expectations of other 80s pulp that i had read uh, like VC Andrews type stuff where the heroine is put upon by everyone in the world and you know men are something you want but they're also terrible beasts that you can't trust and all of the women are out to claw you down so that they can get the men themselves and I was kind of coming in expecting that for Glass Mask but there are a lot of really complex sympathetic women here and that was a really nice surprise and then there's the relationships between the mothers and daughters or at least mother figures and daughters yeah, I don't know what the show is trying to say with this. Like, I'm genuinely unsure. Because Maya has a biological mother who is a single mother who tries to support her until Maya decides to become an actor. Then she's like, no, no, how dare you? You must come back to the ramen restaurant where we've worked our whole lives. And you just must be poor and hopeless the rest of your life. Where Sukakage is like, no, I'm your real mother now. I will pour myself into you. Maya's biological mom does kind of suck. Like when we see her at the ramen restaurant, she's constantly putting Maya down and telling her that she's a she's a screw up and she can't do anything and she shouldn't try to do anything. So like that doesn't paint a great home life. But at the same time, she does ultimately give her blessing to Maya 
to to pursue her acting dream after she has this I have no daughter moment. Except Maya never sees that because Tsukikage burns the letter. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how much to say without spoiling, but there's definitely a contrast between Maya and Ayumi where basically everything in Maya's life sucks and everything in and everything with Ayumi it's good. Like she's traditionally beautiful, she's respect, she she has parents who are already successful and that definitely helped her to get into the business and Maya comes from nothing, she has no support, she's practically all alone in the world and practically the only thing Maya has going on for her is that she is extremely good mm-hmm. at acting. Yeah, I am kind of curious to see I, I don't know if, if that's a level of nuance that the show that the show would have interest in or time for given the, the compression, but that that kind of weird relationship where Ayumi kind of briefly talks about how she sees her own mom as a rival for roles, which yeah. brought the Joan Crawford vibes right back. <laughs> yeah, she has a weird relationship with her parents. We don't see a lot of it, but the scenes we do see, there's definitely a sort of distance. I mean, it's not necessarily an unpleasant vibe between them, but they don't really feel like parent and child either. Mm-hmm. I know. I was surprised because... With everyone being a star in there, I was expecting a lot more family drama, but everyone is so chill and so supportive of each other. Like, I see Ayumi seeing her mom as her rival and her mom taking her seriously more as a sign of support than anything particularly weird. Hmm. Like, she takes her seriously. I can see that as, like, a sign of respect. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And, um, and it is interesting in terms of I think you would later see a shift where, like, this would become more a dynamic of Ayumi's, the Ayumi-type character would seem to have everything, but really it's a loveless home, where whereas there's this kind of ennobling poverty aspect of characters who come from nothing, but their family is there for them, and I have problems with that dynamic, but it's for another podcast. <laughs> I, don't actually, I don't actually see that that dynamic here. No, no, but, like, I'm... I'm I guess I'm saying that its its absence is interesting to me just because it, it becomes so prominent later. Yeah. The other thing uh, I, I kind of found interesting is we have two plays that are name-dropped during this this stretch of episodes, and I kind of wanted to keep an eye on that as we, we go along. Well, three, actually. There are three plays. Uh, all of which kind of deal with the image of of innocence lost. We have La Traviata, which is about, you know, a woman who who falls in love with the wrong man and their tragic their tragic downfall. And then we have Little Woman where uh where Maya plays Beth, who, you know, dies tragically young. And then the- <gasps> Spoilers. I know. Actually actually <laughs> Little Woman has been on my period list since I was in elementary school and I still haven't read it. <laughs> I have seen the the newest adaptation now but i haven't read ah. the book yet and and i like it and good good and but i watched glass first so i actually knew about Beth's fate way before i actually knew about the story of little woman huh. <laughs> like i went into that into the theater expecting that bed to die i mean i guess that's so interesting with stuff of like classic literary literary stuff where it's you know, it's it's well known, but also certain facts get kind of lost. So it's always interesting to know to to you know 
think about what one does or doesn't know going into it. Especially in shows like this where it's, it's you know, you're basically getting the most famous scenes of any given thing. Uh, and the third, uh, the third play that they perform at the very end is Takekurabe, which is based on a short, uh, on a story or a novella about uh, basically kids who live on the edge of a red light district and about them as they become adults, and you know, sort of the female character going into sex work and. Uh, that kind of stuff. It sounded interesting. I couldn't get any very detailed type summaries, unfortunately, in English. But uh, it's very interesting as something con- something continuing that theme. And also this, this idea Glass Mass seems to keep bringing up of almost a literary distancing of these very dark ideas that are both <laughs> present in like the plays that get done and also in the text itself. Interesting. I had not considered that. If you don't know the plays before watching Glassmas, you don't come out knowing more about them after watching Glassmas. No, you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> you really, really like just uh, looking at the the bits and bobs of of that last one that that we see Ayumi and Maya performing. It tells you basically nothing about the play <laughs> except that there is this this love story element between these two kids. Yeah, you can pick up on some details like the setting just through their costume and what little bit of the dialogue we get. Like it's a romance between this this sex worker in training and a, a priest and their forbidden romance. But beyond that, <laughs> stuff happens. It's drama, which I guess is kind of glass mask. <laughs> <and all. laughs> I, I, you remember how on the Fushigi Yugi podcast, you would joke that Fushigi Yugi, you will feel an emotion uh-huh. with this show. Glass mask, you will feel all the emotions. <laughs> Every five minutes. It's entertaining more often than not. Even if sometimes it's unintentionally hilarious, it's it's always entertaining, actually, for me. And no, no, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed oh, watching these first five yeah. episodes. Like, I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the series. Yeah, and I think, oh, I think the soundtrack in particular really helps elevating the scenes. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's always a little bit of a readjustment for me watching older shows because they don't tend to be orchestrated throughout so much as that like the music will creep in for this or that especially dramatic moment. And so you you tend to notice I think you notice the soundtrack more because those because of those silences. And I'm not sure if that's an intentional effect or something that I'm bringing to it as somebody who watches a lot more modern shows. Speaking of silences, there's a scene where where Maya is you know that scene where she is thrown into, I don't know what it was, I think it was a warehouse? I don't, I don't uh, know. The, you know the, that, the that shed. shed She's she been thrown in a shed, shed because yeah, you need yeah. to get better, and she has a huge dramatic thing where she rips up her script. Oh no, I'll never be as good as Ayumi. <laughs> yeah, and she has this this moment where she realizes that she hasn't been creating the, the character. And the moment where she gets into the character, it feels magical because of the music and, I mean, particularly because of the soundtrack. Like, there's there are a lot of elements that are into play in that scene, but particularly the soundtrack really sells this as a magical moment. And then she's suddenly shocked because that's and- the moment where she, where she realizes, right? And suddenly, and the music stops so suddenly that it really helps deliver that shock. 
and to paint it as a good thing and not as her as like having a psychotic break. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I will say for this series, it definitely, you know, we mentioned early on that this series is a little bit more grounded than some other shoujo of the time, but I think it knows how to use those moments of sort of abstracting very judiciously. I think that scene is, you know, if you step back and think about it for even a second, it's a little distressing. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) when you're in it, the emotions come across, you're you're really in Maya's emotions as she gets sucked into this role and kind of the internal journey she's taking. And there's that other great moment um, early on, uh, the first time Maya sees Ayumi perform, where she's doing a pantomime looking at a bird and the bird flies around and lands on her finger and she puts it in a cage. Uh, And we are, it's one of the only moments where we are given to see the thing that the actors are pretending to see. And it's very, you know, sketchily laid out and, and quite lovely. Like, I think this series is very smart about when it, it dips into that kind of dream imagery. Yeah. The the song that plays during that scene, like, I usually think I usually think of that song as the am I supposed to cry in that part and because I'm about to cry like it's not even what it what's happening it's the emotion that comes across in the music like I feel like I feel like I could cry in that moment mm-hmm. because of how emotion because of how exciting it is not in a sort of sad way but in a in in a sort of exciting way yeah and then because it's glass mask, something absurd happens right after where all of a sudden there are there is a pack of vicious dogs on the grounds of his acting school. As you do. <laughs> like that scene is just this show all over where something really kind of beautiful and touching will happen that's actually if and, like really effectively directed, and then something then something weird. And then not one but two of her love interests come to save her. God, that is the scene where Hayami is introduced. So it's even more yes, the most <laughs> Speaking of that scene, I thought it was funny because I saw a Tumblr post one where it it had it has different versions of Glassmas, like the first meeting of between Maya and Hayumi in gift form, comparing in all the different versions, right? And in all the versions, Maya is like blushing and flustered. And in this version, she's like, leave me alone. And she runs away immediately. Please stop carrying me, you strange adult. <laughs> She's like, don't touch me. Good girl. <laughs> we, we ended up, uh, this series is a little bit of a weird, a weird running time. But so we ended up cutting on, on a cliffhanger. That's very stressful. <laughs> I, I suspect it will not be the last of the cliffhangers. Oh, no. Definitely not. <laughs> 22 episodes is a very odd running time. I think the only other time I've seen that happen is, is I think, Samurai Flamenco, which is just a hot mess of a show. <laughs> I think it actually has 23, but the last one is like a recap of the entire show. Gotcha. Hmm. It's very interesting. I guess... This one might end up being a little shorter than you are lis- used to, listeners, just because we've had some technical difficulties. <laughs> and I don't want to jinx it. All right, uh, literally, as I said that, we had another bout of technical difficulties, so I'm going to end this before I bring down any more curses on our heads. Thank you so much for listening. 
Anafam, uh, if you liked this episode, you can find more of our stuff on SoundCloud or by going to our website, animefeminist.com. If you really liked this, you could consider donating to our Patreon. Uh, every dollar helps, really does make a difference. Uh, it helps us to pay our editors and our contributors uh, and our editor for stuff like this uh, and helps us to do things like, you know, bring uh, the recent update that we did to the website and our transcripts for podcasts and all that good stuff. You can find us on social media. We are on Facebook at Anime Femme. We are on Tumblr at Anime Feminist. And we are on Twitter at Anime Feminist. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Next time we will be doing episodes 6 through 11. And until next time, stay dramatic. (laughs) 